three, two, one, and uh, rolling. We need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only the will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty. Anton Karras from The Third Man, Orson Welles. We're actually going to play a scene from an Orson Welles film in, in a few minutes. I'm Randy Credico. This is Live on the Fly, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom here at the nycpodcasting.com on the Lower East Side, the historic Lower East Side, the, where a hot spot for activism for centuries. Um, so uh, we are in collaboration with um, Covert Action Magazine. Also, uh, we have developed uh, a website uh, called AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. You can go there. Uh, we want to get this out to as many people as possible. So we have other places we're going to be placing this in the future. And uh, we, at this point, at this critical point, uh, we need to get this out there, all of this information. So... Um, please go there. Uh, I was in London. I've been back for a couple of weeks, um, and it was quite an experience there in London watching the Assange, uh, the, prelim- the first part of this two-part uh, extradition uh, hearing. And you know, it's very difficult to describe. If you weren't there, it's very difficult to describe. Uh, and I know what was going through Assange's mind. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking because I saw the movie the other day, The Trial, the movie by Kafka, you know, Joseph K. And there's a little scene in there. If you really want to know, if you weren't there, this is what it was all about. And Joseph K. is really Julian Assange. We're going to play this. Uh, this is Anthony Perkins uh, from the Orson Welles directed and starred in uh, film, The Trial, uh, based on Kafka's novel. A question from the examining magistrate about my being a housemaker seems typical of this so-called trial that's being foisted upon me. Why, the very notebook of the examining magistrate confirms what I say. These are the examining magistrate's records. What's happening to me is of no great importance, but I think it is representative of what's happening to a great many other people as well. It is for these others that I take my stand here, not for myself alone. That's it, boy, you I have been arrested, and perhaps, considering the magistrate's opening statement, perhaps they, they had orders to arrest some house raider who may well be as innocent as I am. The arresting officers even tried to get me to bribe them to steal my clothes and shirts from me. I managed to keep calm. I asked them very simply why I was arrested. And what was the answer of your self-styled inspector? If he were here, he would have to back me up in this. 
Gentlemen, he answered in effect, nothing at all. He had arrested me. That was enough. I notice that your examining magistrate has just given some of you a secret sign. Well, I don't know whether that sign was meant to be a, a signal for applause or hissing, but I hereby publicly empower the examining magistrate to address his hired agents out loud. Let him say, hiss now or clap now, whatever he wants. Can there be any doubt that behind my arrest, a vast organization is at work? An establishment which contains a retinue of civil servants, officers, police, and others, perhaps even hangmen. One of you here is an official of some kind. That means you've all come rushing in here to listen and know how what you can about me. Half of you clapped. It was just a leading me on. Get out of my way. Maybe you wanted some practice in fooling an innocent man. Perhaps you found some amusement in the fact that I seriously expected you to be interested in justice. One moment. I merely wish to point out that tonight you have thrown away with your own hand all the advantages which an interrogation invariably confers on an accused man. Just you wait. Well, there you go. Uh, I know it's become hackneyed to make references, analogies to uh, the trial in Joseph K. in these political cases, but it's absolutely fitting for this particular trial. It is so Kafka-esque. And um, see that film, the whole thing, um, with the... Uh, Orson Welles is in it, and Anthony Perkins, the late Anthony Perkins. They're both late. Um, and so um, let's see. I've, we, there are protests around the world. Please get involved. The street movement is very important. It's vital to the success. We've got to uh, get uh, Assange out of there. And uh, yesterday was some good news. We'll be talking to a lawyer, uh, civil rights, uh, and, um, and a um, – Grand jury expert, uh, Marty Stoller, a very uh, prominent lawyer here in New York, who represented me about nine times, and also be talking to Tariq Ali. And now this might be divided into two shows. I don't know. So if you don't hear it today, you'll hear it tomorrow, the Tariq Ali. I don't know. Uh, but we're going to um, first go to uh, Argentina in, in a minute and talk to uh, Alicia uh, Castro, who is the uh, former ambassador to uh, the UK uh, after she was the ambassador to uh, Venezuela under the Kirshner regimes, um, Nestor and then uh, Christina Kirshner, uh, the good old days. Well, they're back. The good old days are back. Thank goodness that uh, what's-his-name uh, is gone, Macri. Uh, but we'll be right back with, uh, with Alicia uh, Castro, we're going to play um, a little uh, Leonard Cohen, and we'll go down to the land of the Pampas. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often I've lost my wife and children But I have many friends And some of them are with me An old woman 
gave us shelter, kept us hidden in the garret. Then the soldiers came. She died without a whisper. There were three of us this morning. I'm the only one this evening, but I must go on. The frontiers are my prison. Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing. Through the graves, the wind is blowing. Freedom soon will come. Then we'll come from shadow. Maybe we'll play that entire uh, piece at the end. Um, Leonard Cohen, the Partisan. Uh, I'm Randy Credico. This is uh, Randy Credico live on the fly. Assange countdown to freedom. Uh, this is our 11th uh, episode this year. This we're, we are in our fourth season uh, doing this, and we'll just continue. We're going to continue doing this until uh, Julian is uh, liberated. So, as I said, uh, we are going down to. Uh, I think it's my favorite city in the world, Buenos Aires. I'm sorry. I called through the, through the other line because I cannot hear you. You can't hear me? Can you hear me? Now I'm starting to hear you. Oh, hello. Okay, hello. Well, um, let me start again. All right? Let me start again. So Alicia Castro is the former ambassador from the great country of Argentina to Venezuela and then the ambassador to the U.K., uh, up until 2016, I believe, uh, when uh, Macri had won. But Macri is gone, and thank goodness Alberto Fernandez and Christina Fernandez Kirchner are in power. Congratulations on that, Alicia. Thank you very much. I'm very, very, very glad that we could communicate. Yes, well, I'm glad that uh, we can hear each other right now, and it's really a pleasure to have you uh, on this show. I've heard so much about you from Renata Villa and <laughs> from, from Fidel. I'm sure there are exaggerations. <laughs> no, Fidel uh, Narve- Narvaez, uh, he... Um, is so excited that you're on this show, and he got to know you very well. He was the counsel from Ecuador, uh, I mean, from Ecuador to uh, uh, to the UK uh, back in uh, up until a couple of years ago. But he talked very highly of you, and I'm just so thrilled you were there uh, for many years in um, in in London. And uh, let me ask you a question: How did you uh, first meet uh, Julian Assange? Well, I was in London as an ambassador from 2012 uh, to 2015, and so I was there when he just uh, entered the the embassy of Ecuador in London, given an asylum, a diplomatic asylum by the government of Rafael Correa of Ecuador. And um, on the on the second day that he was there, all the American ambassadors gathered um, at the embassy to share uh, on TV the session of the Organization of American States related to this case. It's a very important institution, the diplomatic um, asylum, and we are enormously sorry that uh, Lenin Moreno has has dropped it and and has uh, 
handed uh, Julian and all his belongings to to United States. I think it's criminal. It, yes. Um, well, I was going to ask you what prompted him to do that, uh, Linda Moreno, being that he was the. Um, the voice is again very low. I, I was I was going to ask you what prompted uh, Linda Moreno to uh, switch from the policy that was instituted by President Correa. Well, I think that's a question you have to do to Lenin Moreno, but obviously he has to be very close to the United States and and, uh, and get uh, credits from IMF. God knows, but I think it was it was criminal to to hunt Julian because uh, we had there uh, a, a hero of, of of new type. No, we had a you have a we had a soldier of truth, and he was uh, all these legions that he was. Uh, having um, a strange kind of life or I mean they are all uh, they are all lies I mean we I, I could visit I was visiting him very very frequently let's say uh, every two weeks or every three weeks and I'm, 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 I'm a great admirer of him and um, and it was all sort of interesting people around because it was he he considered the attention of philosophers of and and poets and artists and designers and filmmakers like in Loach or Zizek or poets and and um, many feminists and this is an important point because. Uh, there were these allegations of two women, two Swedish women, that he was um, a sex offender. You know? So the the first thing that I clarify with him in my in our first conversation uh, is um, to find out what was about the Swedish allegation of these two women. I am a feminist, and through all my life I've been working with women's issues and looking at things from a gender perspective. And, uh, of course, I would never have supported a sexual offender. But it was immediately clear to me that there were these two women were, these allegations were manipulated, and it was a media fabrication just to criminalize his uh, activities as an investigative journalist. And um, at the embassy, there were always many feminists. I would name Helena Kennedy, Bianca Jagger, Vivian Westwood, Yoko Ono, etc., etc. And um, we have to note that these allegations came immediately after it was released, the, the famous uh, collateral murder video about um, about American soldiers killing civilians from a from a Apache helicopter in in Baghdad in during the war of Iraq, including two two journalists of Reuters that no one knew uh, where were them, and then they came the diplomatic cables where all of us could notice. Um, every country can can could read through these diplomatic cables very clearly the interference of the United States government in every single other country's affair and how even presidents were spied and uh, etc. So um, obviously he was uh, prosecuted for this and uh, do you know Randy he knew that he was in this danger, in the danger that he is facing today, uh, confined 
in a high-security prison and next to be extradited to the United States and, and have a prison for life or, or be killed. He always knew that he was facing this danger, as he always knew that he was spied, even by the security people that he had around um, in, in the Ecuador embassy. Was this, let me ask you, uh, do you think that that spying uh, in the beginning by Correa was really to protect him more? Uh, when Moreno came in, it was, it was to spy through this guy, David Morales of UC Global, and he got um, co-opted by the CIA. In fact, I'm on one of those tapes because I visited him in, in 2017 three times. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm asleep in that conference room. That's on the video, me, me asleep waiting for him. Uh, so, uh, so that was when it really intensified. Moreno, Moreno really wasn't there to help out the Americans. Moreno, let me, getting back, not, not, not Moreno, but uh, Correa. Now, Correa, he wanted those diplomatic cables to be released. He didn't care. He wanted those to go out. Am I right? Well, we all we all did in Latin America because uh, they they are very. I mean, they confirm what we always knew. Uh, of course, United States uh, had always cooperated with the coup d'état in in the coup d'état in Latin America and um, helping the militants to torture in Argentina, uh, having to do with the assassination of Salvador Allende in Chile. We all knew those facts, Randy, but one thing is knowing and the other thing is reading them. Right. Uh, and you, you didn't, having WikiLeaks, you didn't have to wait for 20 or 30 years for that information to be declassified. You knew it in real time to apply it to real politics. So this is the great, great value of, of Julian Assange. You know? And I mean, among the lies of governments, the massive espionage and control, the horrible war crimes, the secret prisons, those black holes like Guantanamo and others, the, the torture methods. I mean, we all knew all these thanks to Julian. I mean, I think all humanity has so, so much to thank Julian for, for what he has done and what he's still doing. You know? he, he said that, uh, I'm quoting, people have the right to know, the right to question and challenge power. And uh, that was his way of empowering people. You know? And the other very good thing among, uh, or, uh, about Julian uh, that makes a big difference with other outlets is that he, once he had an information that was reliable and he could, uh, che- he could uh, check it very properly and, uh, and do all the procedures through encryptation, de Disencryptation. Uh, I don't know the word in English, but yeah. how to how to um, to check the real information. Right. And he has a WikiLeaks has has a record of truth 100%. that no other media outlet can, can show. And after all this procedure, he would just publish it. He was not speculating on something that was. Uh, related to his his beliefs or his preferences. I mean, if it was real, if it was truth, it was out. And he wanted it to this truth to be democratized among every person in the world. And I think that has an incredible value. His um, him, being absent the last couple of years has been a big loss. Like what? 
would we know now about what happened to uh, Morales in in uh, Bolivia? Uh, Assange may could have gotten some kind of cables in the last couple of years that could have been published because we don't know. We really don't know what has happened in Bolivia, and it's difficult to find out. You, they've kicked everybody out. They kicked the Cubans out. They kicked everybody else out. And so we're not aware of what really happened. Do you think that if WikiLeaks were able to operate under Julian Assange, we might have a better understanding? Well, I think the understanding comes uh, always from the same from the same point. You know that all the coup, and uh, of course in the Middle East, and all the uh, there's the same. Uh, the same the same matrix that you have that you had in Libya about demonizing the leader and and creating a parallel government and organizing a civil war and um, inventing and creating uh, things about Gaddafi, for instance. You know, Gaddafi. Libya was the most the most uh, uh, rich country in Africa, and now it's devastated. So the same ma- matrix that, that they applied in Libya, they wanted Americans want to apply it in Venezuela because it has it has oil, and maybe Bolivia because of the lithium. And it's always about the same the same pattern: is the United States wanting wanting to interfere? Um, to get uh, to get the natural resources of our country. Yes. That's what it's all about. Right. That's the name of the game. You don't see us getting involved in the Sudan and uh, other countries that don't have natural resources. It's always countries like in Venezuela, uh, the parallel government that they've established. Uh, are you concerned about that? Um, what might happen in Venezuela over the next uh, year? Well, we are all concerned. Of course, we are concerned that uh, the people are resisting because they have this incredible. They've been empower, empowered by by Chavez, uh, but Chavez is gone, unfortunately. But uh, they couldn't do in Venezuela what they have done in Libya, though the plan was exactly the same. But you know, every time that I ask Julian, and I ask him that many times, every time that I ask him. Do you know something else about this or that? Do you know something else about Argentina or do you know something else about Venezuela? He always would reply, if I would know, if I would have something else, I would have published it. Yes. And uh, I think that that has a great, yes. great, incredibly great value. Well, and I'm, I'm so sorry, Randy, about his situation that I, I can't tell. I've been crying for days to imagine him amongst murderers in that prison without being able to 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 read or or I mean isolated from all ability to prepare uh, to defend himself no laptop no internet no computer no library so far uh, no access to visits. I mean, it's cruelty. They, that's cru- that's torture. Well, they that's really they are torturing this man. Uh, yes. As Niels Melzer, the rapporteur on torture of the United Nations, has t- stated many times yes. that he'd never seen a person for so long with such a long torture in in physical terms and psychological terms, 
as Julian Assange. Yeah? Yes. And then I think that the other thing, and sometimes I'm appalled that some journalists don't seem to take notice. Of course, it's not, this, not your case, Randy. But uh, Julian Assange is not American. Uh, WikiLeaks uh, is an international media outlet. And if they can extradite him to the United States for publishing the truthful information about the government of the United States, it is the end of journalism. Yes. It's not only the end of Julian Assange. Why Assange and, and not the, the Guardian that published the same thing as he did, or the New York Times, or the Spiegel that published the same classified information? Right. Why Assange is facing 18 obscure charges, and this time in prison, and uh, the Trump administration is criminalizing the very act of journalism. And this sends a burning message to every journalist, to every publisher in the world, and to all of us as citizens, as readers, and that would be the freedom, the end of the freedom of press, freedom of speech, but it's also about the freedom to read, the right to know, the right to know the truth that we all have, that we all should have, instead of being spied and manipulated by, by, by fake lies. As, as Julian says, truth is ultimately all what we have. Right, that's true. And and speaking of papers, I know that uh, in Argentina, Pajina Dose uh, printed. Uh, I lost your voice. I lost your nice voice. I, I said I said in Argentina, uh, Pajina Dose uh, printed uh, Assange's work, and I did, did La Nación and Clarín uh, publish uh, Assange's findings and you know the war logs and the cables. Well, uh, Clarín and Nación are, are very right-wing journalists, uh, um, uh, media outlets, and they they won't be prepared for for Assange uh, for Assange in general, no? because as, I mean uh, they are very much on lawfare. You know that we ha- we are having lawfare. I mean the justice. Um, used politically against Rafael Correa in Ecuador, of course Lula da Silva in in Brazil, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, and 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 those uh, right wing commercial uh, newspapers yes, are mostly yes. supporting the, the uh- right wing. Uh, Activities. I agree, and you know, I'm I love Pahina Dose. My friend is one of the redactores, editors there, uh, uh, Sergio Kiernan, who I, you know, I've been in Argentina many times, and I went down there to see the Las Madres de Plaza de Mayo, and he was my translator. I brought four of those women uh, from Linea Fundadora up to New York State, and they helped change some very racist laws in this state. They really are quite heroic. Um, I, I want to get back to Assange, the person. How many times did you visit him in the embassy? How many times did I what? Visit, visit Julian uh, at the embassy in London. Oh, countless, countless, many, many times. I, I would even go with my daughter. Uh, we would spend Christmas with him or New York's Eve, uh, his birthdays always. We would make um, all kind of 
of gatherings, because at the beginning, when it was Korea in, in government, uh, the embassy of Ecuador turned to be a, like a cultural space with Julian there, because as, as I said before, he had attracted so many intellectuals and philosophers and politicians and, and journalists. And uh, uh, so it was, uh, it was like a, it was hard for him, very hard for him, because also the embassy of Ecuador in Londres is a very small place. Oh, yes. So it was very, very hard, his conditions. But it, but it was, he was, uh, he was surrounded by people that, that was um, admiring him and considering his, his work. Uh, so it was, it was a total different life that when, when uh, Lenin Moreno came to government, and then he was, uh, he was, prompt, he was rapidly uh, trying to to get rid of Assange yeah, in from... order to comply with the demands of the United States. Well, so uh, I visited him many, 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 many times. He was he was even fond of Argentine food, and um, so I would send Sunday roasts and all kind of all kind of uh, attentions that he he deserved and he, he enjoyed. Yes. And uh, there, are, there are so many lies told about Assange. He's one of the most sweet peop- people that I've known in my life. And you probably have heard differently, no? I, I, well, yes. I've heard from some people, but people that know him, who've been in that embassy and visited him, and before that, that know him really well, say exactly the same thing. I had Angela Richter on a couple of weeks back. She was a very close friend of his. What did you two normally talk about, since you got very close to him as a friend? What did you normally talk about with Julian? Well, obviously politics, obviously politics, and as I said, if, if, I were, if I would ask him for more than it was published, he always had the same reply. If I would know something else, <laughs> I would have published it. He was, he was working a lot. He was a very hard worker. He was always working, and um, I remember that I, I, uh, I wanted him to have... Spanish lessons or guitar lessons or uh, whatever could distract him for, from this uh, um, solitude. And he said that mm, he had no time. Well. He had no time. The last, time. the last time I saw him, that was 2000, and it was the winter of 2017, he was already in risk. It was, it was uh, and he was conscious about it. And Lenin Moreno wanted to to stop him from publishing anything, and um, he said he wouldn't stop. And he said, he, Randy, believe me, he knew the risks. Yes. And the risk is, uh, was his life. And also he knew that he, had, he was spied. He also knew that he was spied. I remember that, um, for instance, we could be writing, uh, he was right, we had two, two books, and he would write in one, hand it to me. I would write in the other one, hand it to him, like that. I mean, he didn't trust that we... He, he knew that we were heard and, and probably filmed also. He, yeah. he knew that he was spied. Wow. He knew... This, this, this is a man that knew, always knew, I think since 2010, 
uh, he knew that he would risk his life. And he was, of course, we don't like it, but he was, he was ready to offer his, his life, but not his silence. He wouldn't stop doing what he was doing better than nobody else. Yeah? Nobody. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you this. There's a rumor going around that the embassy cat, you are the one that gave him that little kitten. Is that true? Oh, oh, you know that one, to a certain point, Randy, I realized that this one that was a man that for years hadn't touched an animal, and so I started visiting him with my, with my dog. I had a little dog at the time, uh, a Bichon Frise, called Mandiru, that he liked very much, and so I started visiting him with the dog. And the dog seemed to understand that he that it was needed in in his lap, and uh, and there there it was. But uh, so we asked the ambassador that at the time it was a very nice man, Carlos Abad, uh, and we I, I sent you a picture where there's Carlos Abad in a, in a, celebrating a Julian Julian's birthday, and. Um, and I asked Carlos to, if we could give him a dog, and he finally admits a cat. But it was not me. I think it was his children who, who gave him uh, finally Katsuki. Okay. It was a, an extremely beautiful cat. Oh, it really was. I got to see the cat a few times uh, back in November, right about the time you last saw him, which was the winter of 2017. Let me ask you this other rumor about uh, his relationship with the diplomats that uh, uh, before before uh, Moreno. What was his relationship? People say it was hostile. Was it hostile? The relationship with the diplomatic people there was yeah, perfectly... the people yes. No, it was perfectly friendly. I mean, you can see the pictures. I sent. I was sending you pictures. We celebrate. We used to celebrate his birthday, and people would pass and say hello. And uh, it was uncomfortable because it was a small space. But uh, at the same time, Ecuador was on the map, you know, because formerly uh, Ecuador, as a small country was not very known in uh, in the United Kingdom. I mean, it was uh, practically ignored. But then through this heroic mission of Rafael Correa protecting this man that obviously represents uh, the values of truth, uh, I think it was it was very good for Ecuador. As a matter of fact, of course the UK didn't like it. His um, allies in the United States didn't like it. They didn't like him just because Julian was telling the truth. I mean, not even, not even, I mean, he was not a hacker, as people think. He was not an employee of any security agency, so he, he, made, he committed no crime. He's just a publisher. He's just a journalist that would have the confidence of different sources that gave him this material that no other media would publish, and he would publish it after checking it very, very, very carefully. So uh, I think that Ecuador gained a lot in, in terms of, of uh, political consideration 
of course, among the people that we that love truth, and not the people, not the not the people that want to hide war crimes and and and, and prisons and and um, and punishments and lies and coup d'état. Among those people, he was not liked, and the fact that he had this asylum was not their cup of tea. But among all the people that not only love truth but need it, we need truth, Randy. We need truth more than anything else uh, to survive in this chaotic world. And it's very, it, the world is in chaos. I agree with our Pope Francisco when he says that we are already uh, in the midst of the world, 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 world three, and we are. And um, so, uh, as Julian says, if wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. So he was, he was really this person that was many times proposed to have the Nobel Peace Prize. He was, he was working for truth, and, and he was working for peace. His, uh, you know, the smear job on him... Uh, this orchestrated uh, smear job, particularly with the, the Swedish allegations, which were never, ch- there was never any charges. They were just allegations. Nils Melzer was able to tear that whole operation apart because he speaks and, and reads fluent um, uh, Swedish. Now, uh, what was his relationship like with women that would come in and out of that embassy? Well, it was a very friendly relationship, and as I, as I told before, there were always feminists around, um, very, very prominent feminists like Bianca Jagger or Helena yeah. Kennedy, yeah. or they, they were they were prominent feminists, and they they were they were he was surrounded by by women, and of course his relation was very very nice and very proper. All the the allegations were he had never charges, right. Of sexual sex, uh, never, never. He was never charged. It was only allegations. And when one or two of these women, there were two women, they wanted to to take out the allegations. The police in Sweden didn't allow him allow them because, of course, it was it has something to do with something else. And finally, they dropped the charges. And he was ready to go to to Sweden to testify if he would have the guarantee that he won't be extradited to the United States. Yes. But that was not, uh, not the case. I mean, uh, he knew that if he, if he would go to Sweden, he would have been extradited to, to the States. So he offered so, so many times. Uh, he, he was never provided with an assurance against onward extradition to the United States. What? But Sweden and UK refused to provide uh, an assurance that he would not be extradited. And, um, and well, and he was, uh, so he was offering a Swedish court uh, to come to London and, and to testify in London. But finally they came and finally they dropped the charges. But it was something, it was something to, to, to demonize him in the in the press, of course. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Alicia. What do you think of the British treatment of Julian Assange uh, over the last uh, decade, particularly now? It's it, it's appalling. It's appalling. What they? I mean, what, he has no charges now. 
He's only waiting to to be for the for the extradition trial. Uh, he has no charges. Why is he in Belmash prison? And he's he's being tortured. He's uh, he's in 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 in, in solitary confinement uh, with no allowance. He I think he ha- he can have only two visits a month, and he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a laptop. He doesn't have a telephone. Why? Well, Why? I, you know, I, what I would like to know is, here you had the U.N. Um, UN uh, uh, Special Rapporteur on Torture come out and make a statement. You had the Working Group on Arbitrary uh, Detention come out and declare that he is being illegally detained and he should be compensated and let go. Why isn't the British government listening to Amnesty International has come out. You have the International Bar Association that has come out. Reporters, Seen Frontiers, they've come out. Why hasn't the British government... Yes. Why haven't these... Why hasn't the British government responded with all of this international pressure from these esteemed human rights groups? Well, that is a question that you have to make to, to the Minister of Defense. Because I don't find any reason except that they are a very close ally to the United States. And so they're acting like in war. They are not acting like in peace. They're acting like in war. Do you, uh, do you, do you try? Against, against the journalists, no? against freedom of expression, because they have nothing to blame. And then extradition, whether by the treaty of, I'm not a lawyer, but what I know. It's very basic. Is that the extradition treaty between the United States and, and the United Kingdom um, doesn't allow political uh, reasons? And of course, this is political because there's nothing else to there's nothing else to charge him from. Yes, I mean because the same, exactly the same publications that he had made at the time. Uh, was done in the Spiegel, in the New York Times, and in the Guardian. And it was also also proved that he hadn't put any life in risk. He never revealed a source. So uh, he's just the perfect journalist. He, he was doing what all journalists should dream on doing. Do you trust the British justice system at this point? Of course not. No, no. no, of course not. And it's horrible because when you cannot trust justice, you're lost, right. aren't you? Yes. Not, especially those who have less resources. Yes. And there's this international movement um, supporting Julian Assange, but it's not enough. I think it's not, it's not yet enough. Right. And I don't, I don't think that every journalist in every corner or corner of the world realizes what it is in risk with Julian, especially because he's not American, he's not a hacker. Why, why can he be extradited to the United States? Does the United States have universal justice all over the globe? No, no. So? Yes. Well, well, I I have one last question. Uh, We have to go, but uh, what is the relevance? One final question. Uh, What is the relevance of the uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks case for freedom of expression? 
Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's it's uh, it's a very important proof. I mean, as as we we said before, uh, this trial and this uh, this extradition and this prison sends this burning message to every journalist and to every publisher. And if Julian Assange uh, finally is extradited and imprisoned for life, um, freedom of speech is, is dead, is died, is, it's over. It's over. It's over. Well, uh, Alicia Castro, I appreciate you taking out the time. Uh, I just want to make one final statement here. I know on March 24th is the anniversary, the 44-year anniversary of the uh, military coup in Argentina. And I I hope that I can get down there because uh, I like to be around the Plaza de Mayo uh, with those uh, heroic women who continue, who have been out there for 44 years and they've never stopped. And um, yes, they are our teachers. They yeah. are mothers and grandmothers of all of us. Yes, and uh, they are these incredible pacifists that have been supporting and uh, and waiting until the come the time that justice came. And of course, they are very fond of of Julian Assange's work. Yes. And, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Well. Listen. So you uh, will be very welcome at any time, Brandy. I'm going to come down there soon. I want to go and have some empanadas in San Telmo. That's what I want to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. All right. That's, so, uh, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> all right. So don't don't go away. We're going to play another. Um, uh, I just want to say goodbye to you. We're going to play this and go out, but I'm going to go to the mic to the phone and talk to you and say goodbye. But here is Leonard Cohen once again, just for you. Thank you very much, Randy. Right. Thank you. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled Cohen. And uh, boy, we're running a little behind here. Uh, this is Randy Credico. This is um, Assange's Countdown to Freedom here um, 
in the Lower East Side at uh, nycpodcasting.com uh, we're in collaboration with uh, Covert Action Magazine and uh, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Uh, so uh, we are now being joined because we have news yesterday that broke uh, about the situation of Chelsea Manning has been released and um, Jeremy uh, Hammond has been um, released from his confinement. Uh, we are talking to uh, my lawyer, <laughs> he is a great civil rights attorney, uh, he is a, a great uh, First Amendment free press attorney. He is an expert on uh, grand jury uh, proceedings. And that, of course, is the legendary uh, Marty Stoller. Marty, are you there? I am indeed, Randy. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I, you're, you know, I got you last night. Was, uh, there's a whole like three page um, bio on you. I, I can't read it all because uh, we'd be here another week. Uh, Marty, um, welcome uh, to uh, the show. I um, wanted to just get an update. Uh, what took place yesterday uh, in uh, Alexandria, Virginia? Well, technically what took place is that the United States attorney filed a piece of paper with the judge in the case saying that the grand jury, which you have been overseeing, has finished. It no longer is operating. Its term is ended. With that, because Chelsea was being confined to coerce her testimony before the grand jury, if the grand jury doesn't exist anymore to which she can be coerced to testify, then she has to be released. Uh, the confinement that she was under was what's called civil contempt, right. which is a way to punish somebody in order to coerce them to do something that the court wants, in this case, to testify before the grand jury. Chelsea, of course, refused to follow that that court order and therefore was jailed for civil contempt until she agreed to change her mind and testify or until the term of the grand jury ran out. Right. Now, this in is, this case. Yes. In, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Randy. No, all right. So this this grand jury had run out. This has happened before the grand jury finished and then they let her out for a couple of days and she had to go right back in. Right. Yes, but th that is correct. The first grand jury to which she was subpoenaed had its term expire. She was released and that she was resubpoenaed before a new grand jury, which had a, a term of 18 months. Uh, what's remarkable about what happened yesterday is that the grand jury was terminated early. Uh, and it was terminated before the DA or the United States attorney was faced with a decision on a motion that said release Chelsea by the judge or was faced with the difficult proposition of having to consent to the motion to release Chelsea because she, her refusal to testify was adamant and was never going to change. And that there was no coercion that was going to work rather than have a ruling against him. They terminated the grand jury and therefore, Chelsea is released. Well, this is the same judge that put her there, right? Absolutely. It's the same judge that put her there. Is and it... the judge who put her there put her there because she refused his order to testify before the grand jury that she had been subpoenaed to testify to. Right. Now, what? Um, and he said, um, go ahead. What, prompt, what prompted this? What really prompted? Because they were facing the judge was going to release her anyway? 
uh, there's speculation that says that her lawyer, Moira Meltzer Cohen, had filed an extraordinarily strong motion um, that was totally convincing that said there's nothing that you can do, nothing that the jail isn't working, the fines that you imposed isn't working. She's adamant that she will never change her mind. Therefore, the coercive power of jail is not coercing her. Right. And therefore, you have to, you have to release her. That's called a grumbles motion. And it's, it's often made in grand jury cases and rarely granted. But the motion that was put together on her behalf was extraordinarily complete and I think would have been granted. Now, I say that, Randy, uh, telling you that I had a, 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 a somewhat of a hand in helping to craft the motion because I work with Moira to try to, to make sure her papers are brilliant like they are. Right, and right. they were about to work. So the United States Attorney terminated the grand jury early, I and see. Chelsea is out. You know, some months before she otherwise would have been. Now, let me ask you a question, Marty. This is a significant question. Is she totally in the clear now? Uh, well, she's certainly in the clear of civil contempt. What is not so clear are two things that remain hanging over her legally. One is the status of the quarter of a million dollars in fines that the judge imposed as part of the civil contempt proceeding. Uh, the judge has said that he expects to collect those fines from Chelsea. It may be turned into a judgment against her and enforceable in the same way that any judgment is, which is, you know, maybe her salary is going to get garnished for the rest of her life or until $250,000 is made up on a GoFundMe page or contributions that, that want to help Chelsea out. I think we can raise other, that. <laughs> well, that, that's a possibility. Right. The other is that the prospect of Chelsea being charged under the United States Code with a crime called criminal contempt always remains open. I see. Uh, criminal contempt is a separate crime in the United States Code, just like drug possession or gun possession or committing a robbery or racketeering and things of that nature. Uh, uh, but it's an interesting crime because it provides that if you're charged uh, with a criminal contempt, then the sentence provided is any term of years. Wow. Meaning, theoretically, she's subject to a life sentence for criminal contempt. Wow. Really? That, now, that is not likely, that is really not likely to happen, but the possibility is out there. It's still out there. Well, and the decision, of the, well, uh, let me continue this a little bit, Randy, right? The decision about whether to ultimately charge her with criminal contempt, which would be the crime of violating the court's order, um, is really probably up to higher-ups in the Justice Department. It's a political decision that they might make or they might not make. But it's certainly before them, and the considerations that they have have a lot to do with Julian Assange. Right. Um, they fully expect, you know, they fully expect and they hope to get Julian back in the United States and put him on trial for the indictments that were reached in Virginia. Right. Um, and Chelsea is potentially, again, a potential witness in that trial if it ever takes place. Right. Well, let's hope that it doesn't take place. Uh, Marty Stoller, we have to run, but uh, uh, let's get you back next week and uh, give us another update uh, on on the uh, situation with Chelsea Manning. Uh, Marty well, Stoller, ho hopefully, hopefully, Randy, the situation will remain the same and quiet, and and Chelsea can go about her life quietly and without bother from the United States government.
Yeah, we, we, we certainly hope for that. Uh, Marty Stoller, great attorney. Marty, uh, thank you. You've gotten me out of trouble many times, uh, I would say. <laughs> I know Moyer was there doing the jail support, and then you defended me in court, I think, five different times. Not to mention this. Well, that was way back. That was way back. That was way back during Occupy, Randy. Yes, I know. You 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 practically represented everybody at Occupy. You know. Uh, well, a lot of a lot of people got my services back yes, then, and right. uh, you continue to have my services, including through the present time and and all the debacle that went on in the Justice Department about the sentencing of. Mr. Stone. Yeah. Well, I don't like to talk about that, but uh, we will some other day. Uh, Marty Stoller, thank okay, you very Randy. much. We got to run. Marty Stoller. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with the man who needs no introduction, Tariq Ali. Great Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, and uh, I believe that is Sweet from a Variety Orchestra. I've got like three or four different Shostakovich pieces, pastiches, basically, small little uh, drops from his uh, music. Uh, as I said, uh, Tariq Ali does not need an introduction. If you don't know who Tariq Ali is, you're from a different planet. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, he is a... Uh, you know, he's a political activist, he's a writer, he's a journalist, he's a historian, he's a filmmaker, and he's published a number of works, including the two that I have with me today, which uh, he's the editor of Assange, in defense of Julian Assange, that he uh, co-edited with my closest friend, Margaret Ratner Kunstler, and also uh, this brilliant book called The uh, Dilemmas of Lenin. You've got to read this book. You can get it at Verso. Man, I read it this week, again, the second time this week. Uh, and of course, I've read the uh, Julian Assange uh, uh, in defense of when I was in London, where I got a chance. I've been wanting you on this show now for four years, Tariq. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. 
I really have. And I didn't know how to go about it because I know you're a busy man. You know, you got these interviews with uh, Oliver Stone. You're writing books. You're you're busy at all times. And I, I finally I said, Margaret, can I get him on? So I went to London and I met you outside the rally where you gave this rousing speech in front of a throng of about a thousand people. And um, and I asked you then. And it was a real pleasure. What a speech that was, by the way, uh, down there. And afterwards, we spoke, Tariq. Uh, and right now, we're going to talk about Julian Assange because I asked you back then. I thought it was a big turnout. And you said it wasn't big enough. So can you elaborate on that? Well, it was a biggish turnout in the sense that for, uh, you know, there's been such a campaign of innuendo and slanders against Julian that I was happy there were about a thousand plus people there. But ideally, uh, I was hoping for 10,000, uh, you know, and, and if not more, because this is such a serious case of uh, civil rights violations, freedom of the press, the right to publish, uh, that more people should have come, and they, they, they'll feel bad. Quite a few people who didn't come uh, emailed apologizing, but nonetheless, it was good we did it. Uh, it was good we did it in public. It was good we did it outside the Houses of Parliament. And this uh, infamous trial of Julian is uh, taking place. It will carry on. Uh, the first phase is over. It will go all the way up to the British, uh, UK Supreme Court, and we'll see what happens. That's but uh, I, I certainly was hoping for more people, Randy, at that demonstration, because there should be an awareness that it's not just Julian Assange. Uh, he's basically fighting for all those who believe in freedom of speech and freedom to write, freedom to think. Well, that's, it's, it's very important to have a ground game here. I mean, this, uh, you know, you take a political prisoner like uh, Nelson Mandela, where tens of thousands of people would show up all the time. Uh, and yeah. in, in the case of Julian Assange, it's not happening at this point in time because, no. because of the smear campaign against <clears throat> them, basically, right? Right, absolutely. And I, I would sort of go further and say that the newspapers <clears throat> that utilized WikiLeaks to increase their circulations, liberal newspapers like uh, the New York Times uh, in the States, the Guardian uh, here, uh, should have campaigned vigorously and effectively demanding that these absurd charges be dropped. They didn't. They've come out against uh, the the attempt to extradite him to the United States, to, to be fair. But this should have been a consistent campaign. And the Guardian uh, reporting of the trial was, I thought, rather weak. I mean, the person writing it was good, but the publicity given to it and the place in the newspaper was weak. But then I read today, um, Randy, that uh, some more enlightened judge in the United States has re released Chelsea Manning from prison, uh, where she had been locked up for refusing to testify to a grand jury uh, and provide evidence for prosecuting Assange. Credit to her. I'm really pleased uh, uh, that she's out. And uh, a, a British equivalent of the judge who released Chelsea would immediately release Julian Assange today because there's no case to answer. Well, I don't know if you—I was there for that trial. I, I watched three days of it 
totally amazed. Appalling. By it. it was it was the worst thing. I'm, I want to play something for you um, by uh, Margaret uh, Kunstler's uh, late husband, William Kunstler, and, and and tell me if if this pretty much describes the scene uh, at that courtroom of what's going on. Let me just play this one minute clip okay. here. Okay. Okay. I suspect that better men than the world has known, and more of them, have gone to their death through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South, where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. Your thoughts on that statement by Bill Kunzer right after the Chicago 8 trial? Brilliant. I mean, he was uh, a very special person. And, uh, you know, people like him... Well, they still exist, but not on that level and not of that quality, in my opinion. I mean, you know, Julian has got some very brilliant lawyers. Uh, Gareth Pierce, for instance, who's the solicitor on the case, is uh, uh, excellent. Uh, but the Kunstler's equivalent doesn't exist in, in the United States. And in Britain, the legal system is different, but, you know, neither here. So it's very good you read that out. That was on the Chicago trial, well, yes. another monstrous. Right, right yeah. out, right out to the Chicago Seven trial. I got to uh, know him very well. I, I met him in '86. I basically yeah. moved into the house, and he was quite the figure. He really was. Uh, I went with him on his. Yeah. I went with him on his book tour in 1995. He died yeah. later that year. But you know, but what he says there about these, you know, the semblance of legality, these trials is—is is this a classic show trial in in the 36, uh, 37, 37 Russian trials? By uh, by yeah, uh, by Stalin. Uh, but those were legal too, un- unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they forced in those trials, in the Moscow trials, of course they they forced people uh, to confess, and that ended the trial. I mean, if you confess, you're guilty. That's it. And but with that, they didn't succeed in doing in uh, in uh, some of the trials that. Uh, Kunstler was mentioning, and that they haven't done in Julian's trial. It's so obvious it's a fake, rigged trial uh, being pushed through. He should never have, he should have been released the minute uh, his arrest for um, jumping bail was right. over. And and they kept keeping him in extremely bad conditions. I mean, the night before the trial opened, Randy, they uh, they changed his cell five times in the night to disorient him. I mean, where does this happen? This is meant to be a country where legal norms are observed, and this, uh, you know, incredibly biased uh, judge. 
or senior magistrate or call her what you will, refused to give an instruction to the present governor on a number of issues which other judges have done with some effect. So there's no doubt whatsoever it's a very vindictive process that is taking place in Britain. I was really amazed by that judge not uh, granting or just giving an edict. You've got to treat this guy. If he's going to be in my courtroom, you can't treat him like this. Um, I know. You know, I, know. I, I look at him, uh, Tariq, I look at him. He's been in Belmars almost a year. Uh, he has been in that embassy for 10 years. And I, I'm looking at past cases like that, the resilience that he has, the resourcefulness yeah. uh, that he has. I look back at when Kropotkin was in uh, the Peter and Paul Fortress. I read his autobiography. He he was there for a couple of years before his escape, uh, but he would walk in circles inside that very small prison cell. Uh, and you had others uh, in, in the Santo Stefano prison under uh, King Francis uh, in, uh, in Sicily, uh, or in yeah. Naples. So you have uh, some people who are able to survive it and then go on and continue to work. What What is it yeah. that makes Julian so special? Well, what makes Julian so special that <clears throat> his case is um, taking place uh, in a period where the mass media has become a central pillar for defending wars and neoliberalism, uh, which is a shift from the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, even the early 80s. And uh, in this world, they don't want people like Assange to exist and do what they're doing. So effectively, it's um, a very open and crude preventive measure. This is how we're going to treat you. And if there are any people tempted by whistleblowing uh, uh, or publishing material handed over by whistleblowers are thinking of doing it, just watch what we're going to do to Julian Assange. That is the purpose of this trial. There is no other purpose. I, I uh, In the book, In Defense of Assange, uh, in the very first uh, paragraph, you quote Ingalls, uh, and uh, that this certain moment in time, these two parallelograms or whatever that are that are floating around uh, the evil and the good, uh, and how they clash at some point, and and then you go into talking about how Assange finally emerges, the birth of WikiLeaks after 9-11 and the lies and nobody knowing the truth, and then with all these different elements, the birth of WikiLeaks. Can you go into that? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, you've summed it up, Randy. It's uh, very good that uh, Margaret and I did this book uh, in defense of Julian Assange, which is published by... OR 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 books in New York. books. And it was it was Colin Robinson's idea, the publisher. And it was a very good idea because there's been too much silence about Julian. So uh, we managed to do it. Large numbers of people uh, known and not so well known uh, participated in and contributed to the book and uh, it's been doing extremely well all proceeds go to the courage foundation right. 
yeah. uh, which is set up to fight the case. So I would urge people to read it. It's not just the introduction that uh, I... I wrote with Margaret. It's 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 a book complete with uh, arguments to use against people who are inactive uh, or you know misinformed and. Um, the uh, UN reporter on torture, Niels uh, Melzer, Niels Melzer, yes. Niels Melzer gave an amazing speech at the, uh, you know, not I don't think uh, at one of the big meetings we held in London, where he said how he himself had been misled by the unending uh, sewage of slander and rumors that were being spread to discredit Julian Assange. And then when he investigated, he realized that how all this was part of an entrapment scheme that had been put in place. Uh, he, I don't think he named any country, but it's obviously the CIA and uh, intelligence services elsewhere. So that, that sort of material um, is... Um, in the book. And uh, the aim of the book is very simple, to educate people on the Assange affair and say, please do not forget this guy or what is being done to him for bringing to you information which enabled you to see the brutality and savagery of the imperial wars that the United States has been waging in the Arab world. I mean, I have to say here, uh, Randy, that even Trump, monster though he is, uh, does occasionally admit that when he wants the wars to end, or he says he does, it's not just to save American life, but he mentions in his last tweet on the subject the millions of Arab people that we have killed. No one, the, most U.S. presidents rarely talk about the damage they've caused. This guy, I don't know why, but he does it. And it confirms what we know, that over a million people were killed in, in Iraq as a result of constant U.S. interventions, sanctions, uh, and bombings, and finally the occupation. And what Julian did... Um, uh, thanks to the information made available by Chelsea Manning, was to put all this material out so it could be seen by the press. And one of the things that hurt the United States propagandists the most was a video showing a helicopter just killing people at leisure, just as a game and the the, the sort of sick conversation that the pilots had with each other. I mean, that was incredibly revealing, actually. Well, uh, prior to that, and you describe uh, the mainstream media, The Guardian and others, uh, before uh, this, uh, with, in, in respects to the war, that they were basically getting uh, State Department handouts, you know? We didn't yeah. know what the hell was going on. And you quote Wellington, Wellington saying, publish and be damned. Publish and be damned, and WikiLeaks did just that. Can you go into that? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> the in the way they cover wars now has changed a lot since the Vietnam War. After the Vietnam War, they decided, the powers that be, that the relative freedom afforded to television and print media journalists to cover that war couldn't be risked again because they, say, they think it's the media coverage 
that created the huge anti-war movement. Now, this is only partially true. It's true that the coverage of the Vietnam War on CBC uh, and CBS uh, every night did play a part, and then, but you had Senate hearings going on, which were shown on television too, with Senator Fulbright questioning the very nature of the war and having government people there in front of him. Uh, but most importantly, is that the U.S. was then uh, enforcing conscription so that every single U.S. family uh, was affected. Uh, I was going to say despite class, um, uh, color, or creed, but obviously very rich whites got off, like George Bush. They could avoid conscription. And then there was a political campaign not to fight in the Vietnam War. So many people fled the States and went to Canada or came to Europe or went to Mexico to avoid fighting in this brutal imperial war. Um, so that all created the atmosphere, but the media did report all this. Now, the attempt during the Middle Eastern wars after 9-11 was to keep the media under very strict control and ensure that what journalists were writing was, if not vetted, uh, certainly uh, uh, corrected and miscorrected and lied about whenever there was any critical reporting. So that made critical reporting of the wars virtually impossible, and there were then embedded journalists uh, who went in with the uh, uh, armies, the United States and other NATO armies fighting these wars, and were allowed access only to uh, what the army wanted them to see, because the situation was very dangerous. I think Robert Fisk of The Independent was one of the few journalists uh, who then broke through by visiting unauthorized sites and telling us what was going on. But the big breakthrough came when Chelsea Manning, uh, horrified by what she was uh, witnessing and reading, uh, decided to make the reports public. And that is when WikiLeaks came into its own and began to publish, and then they published a lot of other material, all very useful material which wasn't in the public domain. So they played an amazing role. And in that sense, uh, Randy, it should be understood that um, WikiLeaks has done what couldn't be done by individual whistleblowers in the past. So Julian wasn't saying, hi, I'm getting this info from X, I'm Julian Assange, I'm releasing it. It was an organization that did it. And it was this organizational uh, brilliance of WikiLeaks, inspired by Julian and others, uh, which enabled the material to go all over the world. That they want to finish, but I think it's not going to be easy to do that. I, I As you say, WikiLeaks uh, has been exposing all the lies has shined a light on all of the lies that have, uh, you know, brought us into these wars. You know, um, in this country, we've had a long tradition of suppressing uh, journalism, you know, or they've been totally uh, co-opted. You go, you go way back. 
uh, to the Alien and Sedition Acts here, where you had people like Matthew Lyon and Jedediah Peck who opposed the Alien, Alien and Sedition Act. They were prosecuted for that. So it's really important that uh, w- the press is really important to, to inform people. And you go to the French, because you talk about, and we're going to talk about your book in just a minute, the other book, about the French Revolution. And uh, with, with people like Marat and Des Moulins and, and Brissot and, and others, they were under attack in the very beginning. They were, in fact, Marat was like uh, hunted down by Lafayette. They didn't want him to tell the truth of what was going on in France. Am I right? Absolutely right. Uh, the French Revolution erupted after at least a decade of uh, uh, publicity, books, pamphlets, uh, newspapers, pointing out how horrific the situation was. And many of these people were imprisoned or had to uh, flee into exile. But that created the atmosphere and the milieu in which the revolutionaries flourished in the late um, 18th century, when the revolution erupted in 1789. So, yeah, our journalism was new, but it played a very big part in it. And um, uh, the, the, the spread of information was both by uh, pamphlets, cartoons, Um, newspapers, weeklies, and also by word of mouth where people couldn't read or uh, in areas where there was illiteracy, people would gather and someone would read (coughs) a newspaper to them in uh, lamplight, candlelight. Uh, So, yeah, there was a very strong tradition of that. And, of course, later in Tsarist Russia, where underground magazines uh, were constantly being repressed, changing their names, etc., etc., so there is a long tradition of this, uh, but we've now reached a new level with the advance of uh, technology, uh, where which helps both sides. I mean, it helps the uh, uh, National Security Agency in the United States to monitor uh, and carry out surveillance on whoever they want, including the Chancellor of Germany, the Prime Minister of uh, Britain, the President of France, whoever. No problems at all. So ordinary activists uh, can be their uh, accounts, their uh, you know, smartphone calls, everything's monitored. Yes. So when yeah. people act like Chelsea Manning did uh, through very clever uh, IT networks, uh, in this case WikiLeaks, then immediately they toughen up the measures to see how they can they can catch them. But it is not possible in today's world to predict everything. So often, as in the past, stuff gets through. And uh, it it has always been the case. It was ever thus. Uh, In different ways, different forms of technology, different forms of spying to prevent the people from learning the truth. That is the key. We're talking to Tariq Ali. Uh, Tariq, um, I want to ask you, when was the last time uh, F- Fidel from Ecuador, Narveras, uh, told me that he thinks you were there in 2018 or 2017 or 2018, the last time you saw Julian Assange? The last time I saw Julian was a few weeks <clears throat> 
before he was uh, taken to prison, before the Ecuadorian, the new government in Ecuador decided to dump him, uh, <clears throat> having made available the embassy to very high-grade Spanish surveillance uh, done by a Spanish security firm on the instructions of the U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, so I saw Julian at the embassy. He was at that day, on that day, in good spirits. I'd gone uh, with Colin Robinson to discuss the book with him, and he was very much in favor of the book. And at that time, we were all hoping that Jeremy Corbyn might be elected, and that would have sorted out this case, because right. there's no doubt a Labour government would have dropped the charges. But anyway, that was not to happen. But so Julian was in a in a relatively... Uh, good mood, but without any illusions as to what uh, the judicial system he was confronting in Britain was likely to do. And uh, he was, he, at that time, he was, you know, despite his 10 years in the embassy, he was, he was looking good. I told him that, and he said, I've been doing a lot of working out, because I said, you're looking much healthier than the last time I saw you, which was about over a year ago. And he said, yeah. I am. I am feeling better, too. All that came to an end when uh, he was uh, taken to prison, where they were determined to break him. I'm sure there's video of you talking to him uh, by UC Global, uh, Tariq. Uh, you know, you just mentioned Corbin. I want to play uh, this uh, quick clip of Corbin and, and, ask, and ask you what the uh, implications of this or the import of this uh, exchange with Boris Johnson. Can you play that, Frank? This deep disparity with the US is about to be laid bare when the courts decide whether the WikiLeaks publisher, Julian Assange, will be extradited to the US on charges of espionage for exposing war crimes, the murder of civilians, and large-scale corruption. Will the Prime Minister agree with the parliamentary report that's going to the Council of Europe, that this extradition should be opposed and the rights of journalists and whistleblowers upheld for the good of all of us? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I'm not going to comment on any individual case, but it is obvious that the rights of journalists and whistleblowers should be upheld, and this government will clearly continue to do that. Well, what do you make of that exchange, which I know you've well, already Well, I seen. thought, uh, uh, you know, Jeremy was obviously very good, but I thought that <clears throat> Boris Johnson's reply uh, was not a reply that he was expecting. He did not defend the trial, uh, we noticed. So it did make, I discussed this with Jeremy subsequently, this particular issue. And we did both wonder whether there was some divisions within the judicial uh, establishment on this, which uh, uh, Boris Johnson was reflecting, but it was not a fanatical response at all. <laughs> it was calm. Uh, so fingers crossed, but I mean, you know, one shouldn't um, take it... Uh, take it too seriously. Well, I'm but I notice, I notice uh, 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 Randy, that very few 
U.S. lawmakers are raising the issue of Assange, which is a big, big mistake. I mean, I do think that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, the most left-wing candidate in the Democratic race, uh, should have raised the issue of Assange and these new, young, uh, very inspiring uh, uh, female lawmakers should raise it. I don't think, I'm not sure whether Ilan has or not. She's normally very good. Uh, but I, I would urge them strongly to raise this issue because it has nothing whatsoever to do with espionage and everything to do with truth-telling. Yes, well, they got to figure that out. Maybe you can write Cornell West, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, who is kind of a surrogate for, uh, for Bernie Sanders, to get him to bring that up because it is very dangerous. You know, getting back to Corbyn, so you have that development, and then I, I found it peculiar that the Queen uh, and, and, and uh, Buckingham uh, put out a statement saying that they didn't want to get involved in this political affair. What did you make of that? Well, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it was good that this was said, and I, it obviously will, uh, is being used by defense lawyers in the trial, that it is a political trial taking place which should automatically exclude uh, the extradition. But there are other laws which the prosecution is finding at, uh, very close laws uh, agreed to by previous British governments and the United States which contradict that. So, uh, I mean, I think everyone is, is following the case and I think if they decide to extradite Julian, which I strongly hope they won't, uh, the British justice, so-called, will be tarnished yet again. Yeah. They've not got a good record uh, in the past, and they basically have done the bidding of the intelligence agencies once again, which they should have learned from in the trials that took place during the Irish Troubles um, and um, subsequently with the arrest without trial um, uh, of uh, large numbers of Muslims in this country. So, you know, we were hoping that the Assange trial would mark a break with that past, but till now the attitude of the judge uh, indicates the opposite. I mean, what you've got to understand that there is an informal list uh, which is available to the uh, just, uh, you know, ministries and ministers of law and justice and attorneys and attorney generals, which gives um, names of safe judges in these trials. Right. And so if there's a trial the government thinks is particularly important, they are given to safe judges. Oh, uh, we not... know this because in private they boast about it. But um, <clears throat> so whether that has happened in this case and on what level, we don't know. I mean, we will see. I think the final judgment will be uh, made by the Supreme Court, at least we hope so. And well, that will take that years, will be... though. That would be years. He'd be tied up in that prison for 
two or three years. I know. No, the, the big demand should be, like in the case of Chelsea Manning, that Julian should be released from Belmarsh, freed uh, from prison, uh, and uh, let out. I mean, if necessary, they can have restrictions because he broke bail. That's what they come up with. It's you just know? amazing. But th- that's amazing. fine. Um, he, uh, he, he can, you know, stay in a safe place. But uh, he must be released from this monstrous prison. And I mean, I thought it was incredibly moving that this is a high security prison for serial killers, mass murderers, terrorists, uh, real or imagined. And uh, these people read the newspapers and listen to the radio. And these prisoners sent a letter to the governor saying that they were opposed to Julian Assange being kept in solitary confinement and he must be allowed to mingle. And that did have an effect. The governor lifted the solitary confinement, and so Julian could talk to other prisoners. Yes. Well, you know, the only show uh, the British legal system show any sympathy is for people like uh, uh, General uh, Pinochet, who was uh, in, a, in a beautiful mansion as he awaited an extradition <coughs> that didn't happen. Um, all right. So uh, listen, we're going to I want to talk about the other book for a minute. So uh, we're going to play this Tchaikovsky, uh, uh, Shostakovich uh, a string quartet, just about a minute of it and come back and talk about uh, the dilemmas of Lenin. OK, can you stay with us? Yeah. OK. Dmitry Shostakovich, and that is his fifteenth uh, string quartet. Um, what do you think of that? Are you you're a big fan of Shostakovich? I am, and <clears throat> I think that um, I mean I like all his music by and large. Obviously, some is better than others, <clears throat> as is the case with most artists uh, in whatever field. Uh, my uh, the string quartets. Um, are my favorite, and the Borod- the Borodin quartet's playing of them are, is particularly good, I think. And uh, I used to listen to them nonstop, especially when I was writing books. Often, when I'm writing nonfiction, I listen to uh, to music. Less so in fiction, but in nonfiction, I always have music playing in my ears or on the loudspeaker. Right. And the Shostakovich has helped me along on many a book, uh, including the dilemmas of Lenin. So that's uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad you 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 played that. I mean. 
been a very brilliant composer. And those quartets, actually, if you look at them and read how and when they were written, are very moving. I mean, a number of them were written during the siege of Leningrad during the Second World War. Um, it's it's often difficult for people in the West, especially the new generations, to understand what that war meant to Soviet people all over the Soviet Union and the impact it had on artists, on non-artists, on human beings. And some of Shostakovich's string quartets were written in that period. So they are incredibly powerful and uh, moving. I don't have them in front of me, so I can't discuss each in, in turn. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you, you played that, Randy. Be, uh, be, uh, speaking of the, uh, the siege of Leningrad, the 900-day siege of Leningrad, um, I think after 150 days, uh, the uh, Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony debuted there just to like say, hey, screw you. Uh, Fritz to the Germans. Uh, <clears throat> am I right that uh, that was debuted in uh, Leningrad? Yes, and uh, it's. I like it. It's not, in my opinion, as powerful as the string quartets. Um, I think the quartets uh, are very, very strong. In my opinion, it's the best piece of music that Shostakovich uh, uh, wrote, and. Uh, you know, in some of this music, he is playing a homage to uh, 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 Beethoven and Bach, German composers, emphasizing that, that the campaign wasn't just against Germans, it was against German fascists, German Nazis. Uh, <clears throat> because uh, there's a very moving episode in... One of the characters in Solzhenitsyn's book, Rubin, uh, whose real name I now forget, but who wrote a book called No Jail for Truth, in uh, which he describes how as a German, uh, he was a philologist and as a German scholar attached to the Red Army and fighting in the Red Army against German fascism, he went to translate uh, Soviet generals addressing the prisoners after the defeat of uh, suffered by the Germans in Stalingrad. And um, he describes in his book that it seeing the German officers sitting there with their head in their hands and just saying, we're sorry, we feel ashamed of being Germans. And then this guy, uh, Kopolev, that's his name, Lev Kopolev, stands up as a German uh, expert and uh, Russian and German language scholar and tells them you shouldn't feel ashamed for being Germans because your culture, your language, your country has given us Goethe and Heine and Marx and Beethoven and Bach and goes through the list of German cultural achievements. And listening to him, some of these people were crying. Uh, 
And that is something which no Western country could have done, where people like uh, Kopolev wouldn't have been near anything, leave alone German prisoners of war. So I think it's worth recalling that, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, and uh, th- th- this was very important, especially in early Soviet culture. Shostakovich's uh, family uh, underwent uh, a lot of uh, problems and some persecution yeah. during the purges. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Randy, who didn't in the worst dark period yeah. uh, of the Soviet Union's history, the uh, height of Stalinism yeah. and, and its purges? Yeah. Everyone suffered, everyone I mean, those who didn't suffer had to explain why they haven't suffered. And <clears throat> someone once asked Boris Pasternak, how come all the other great poets were in prison? Uh, in fact, Mandelstam, uh, one of the great Soviet poets, said, uh, um, uh, the one thing you have to say about Stalin's Russia is that they really appreciate poetry. Otherwise, why would have they locked all of us up? <laughs> they understand <laughs> Yeah. And uh, uh, <clears throat> Pasternak was asked, how come uh, you were never arrested? And Pasternak told this story that during the pre-revolutionary days, he had reviewed in a famous Moscow literary magazine some Georgian poetry uh, published in a Georgian magazine in translation uh, into Russian. And Pasternak, as a literary critic, had reviewed an unknown poet, Joseph Jugashvili's, uh, you know, poem, which he thought has showed promise. And Jugashvili was, of course, Stalin. And Stalin wow. had this weird thing of never forgetting praise when he was not in power. So uh, Pasternak was never put on the, you know, endangered list wow. in the Soviet Union. That's, he was never in prison. That's a great. That's a great story. The name of the book is. Uh the Dilemmas of Lenin. You can get it at Verso Books. Just go online, get it at Verso Books. You can get the paperback for like 10 bucks. It's it's really uh, the first book I've recommended uh, in the last year. And it's it, I've read it twice. It really is uh, this panoramic uh, retrospective of what preceded uh, the uh, the ultimate revolution in 1917. But I got to ask you a question: When you wrote this book, uh, a book on Lenin, and it was at the centennial of the revolution, you must have known that it was a targeted, uh, limited uh, audience. I mean, you know, you put a swastika on the cover of a book, and it automatically sells. But you put a red flag on it, forget about it. What prompted you to write this book on Lenin? I felt that the centenary of the revolution wasn't being observed in 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 Putin's Russia at all. Neither the February 1917 nor the October 17 revolutions. They were not an art part of our calendar, Putin told an Indian journalist. <clears throat> so I felt that there should be some recognition. So Versa decided... Uh, uh, to publish a couple of books on it, and um, uh, my colleague China Mieville, a very fine novelist, wrote a history, a very wonderful history of the revolution, and I wrote this book centering 
on Lenin because Lenin, uh, uh, you know, you feel was not just feed, you know, had been made mummified. His ideas right. mummified, his body mummified. No one knew what he actually said. And so I wrote the book, as I, I say in the introduction, as an act of resistance to the dominant culture saying, you're not going to celebrate, you're not going to mark uh, the centenary, uh, except to say it was all a load of rubbish, well, screw you. And so that's why I wrote the Lenin. And, uh, you know, I hadn't read his own writings for a long time, and it was a real joy to do so. And then you discover things which in the 60s and 70s you'd either ignored or you hadn't realized their full importance, like one of Lenin's last writings for the Soviet daily Pravda, he apologized to the people of Russia as he looked around him and all the mistakes that had been made and the civil war and how they hadn't known fully what they were going to do if they'd come to power. And Lenin said, I apologize to the Soviet people for many of the things that we've done. And that struck a real chord with me, because very few leaders of revolutions or counter-revolutions or bourgeois democracies ever say that. Right. And obviously he was feeling this very strongly, and his last texts were very brilliant, seeing, in many of them, seeing the problems uh, that existed and how they could be uh, remedied. I mean, and so it's worth stressing all this again, and worth stressing also that none of the Bolshevik leadership believed in 1917 that they could have the revolution in Russia alone and that would be fine. They were all banking on the German revolution. And Lenin wrote time and time again, if there is no revolution in Germany, we might be sunk. Uh, and uh, Stalin believed it as well at that time. There's no doubt about that. It's in his writings. Trotsky certainly did. Uh, that it couldn't exist for too long unless it spread. Well, it did spread in an un- un- unforeseen way, <coughs> but not in the advanced countries of the capitalist world, but elsewhere, you know, China, Vietnam, y- Cuba, um, etc. Uh, and then the by through military uh, occupation liberations of the Second World War in Eastern Europe. Um, so, uh, I mean, just one footnote on that, Randy, is that most of the people who fought with the Nazis in Eastern Europe, their ideological descendants are now in power in Eastern Europe. Right, uh, not right. just the Ukraine, but in lots of countries, uh, they prefer, almost come close to preferring, in some cases do, the, the Nazi occupation rather than the Reds. Um, so it's a very strange world we live in. And for all these reasons, I, I felt like writing it. And I was also writing it for an audience um, which knew little uh, because of the you know times in which they were growing up, and uh, one of the things that gave me great pleasure was when I traveled around the country, introducing the book, not just here but elsewhere in the world, 
Large numbers of young people were present. Many were studying the Russian Revolution in their sixth forms or at universities, but there was just a sprinkling of young people who came out of curiosity, not because they wanted to repeat the process, but they had no idea what this revolution was. So like the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution had now become a part of history. And so I felt a book was necessary. And uh, I mean, what gave me special pleasure was that it was translated uh, uh, into Arabic. It's been translated into other European languages, not Russian or Chinese, alas, but one lives in hope. It's it's an amazing book. I, I uh I like in the uh, beginning, you go back and you talk about these early peasant uh, uprisings by Pugachev and Razin, is that his name? But they didn't, they didn't win. And in fact, I think Kropotkin says it. You have a big piece from, a Kropot- from Kropotkin's History of the French Revolution, which is the only book on the French Revolution I've never read. I mean, I, I sat through for weeks trying to finish uh, um, Thomas Carlyle's uh, History of the French Revolution. But this is the one, and, and you say the influence uh, that that French Revolution had on Kropotkin and then also had on Lenin. Lenin looked up to uh, Robespierre and he looked up to um, uh, the Glorious Revolution uh, under uh, Oliver Cromwell. Not that he agreed with them politically, but tactically he agreed with them. Is that, am I right there? <coughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the Russian Revolution was the first revolution to be made uh, by a leadership which knew what it wanted. They wanted a socialist revolution, and that is what they tried to achieve. All the other revolutions had something accidental about them. Mass movements which grew into revolutions, I mean, the... um, uh, civil war in Britain determined the course of the English Revolution because prior to that, prior to the civil war and uh, discussions with the monarch Charles I during the civil war, uh, Cromwell and the moderate section of the revolution felt they could do a deal with the king. He could be made a constitutional monarch, etc., etc. And there was a huge debate, and it was Charles refusing to consider any negotiate any serious negotiation with the revolutionaries and constantly intriguing including with foreign powers to move in and crush the revolution that forced Cromwell and his colleagues to make the fateful decision very important in terms of the English Revolution of uh, putting Charles I on trial and executing him which marked a new phase in this revolution as did the execution of Louis and Marie Antoinette in the French Revolution, the Jacobin phase. Uh, In Russia, there was a civil war going on, and the decision to execute the royal family was made at the height of the civil war uh, by a secret meeting of the Politburo because they felt that if they did not do this, the white counter-revolutionaries backed by 22 foreign powers who were intervening in Russia would use the monarch as the uh, titular figurehead and leader of the counter-revolution, which, you know, they would have done. Uh, 
And that is the reason they gave. So there was no time to hold a trial uh, of the Tsar, which is what uh, Trotsky wanted and many others too, saying let's put him on trial and for, for history, going through the crimes of the system. Uh, that never happened, so they worried that the whites might take over um, the, the town where the Tsar and his family were kept. Uh, they, they carried out the executions in a, in, a, in, in, in a cellar, and that uh, settled that one. Well, that's the reason why they got rid of Louis the Sixteenth, you know, in uh, 1793. First of all, he tried to escape, and there were wars going on, you know, the Battle of Valmy, uh, where Dantone, uh, you know, you mentioned Dantone a lot in, in this book, and uh, his um, influence over... Uh, over Lenin, Dantone was like a bigger than life figure. He was uh, he was a great speaker. He was energetic. Uh, well, what what exactly uh, what exact influence did he have on uh, on Lenin? Who are you talking about? Dantone, Dantone, George Dantone, 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 the the French revolutionary uh, Dan, Dan, Danton, Dantone. Ah, Danton. Okay. Yes. Ah, yeah. Well, the big influence. Uh, yeah, I mean, the big influence uh, Danton had on uh, 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 Lenin and all the Bolsheviks as well as Mensheviks was, uh, you know, he was a fiery orator, spoke for the people, uh, spoke to the people, um, and uh, muttered the immortal worlds when asked about the reasons for the success of the revolution, Danton replied, audacity, audacity, and yet more audacity. Right. And of course, this was straight out of Lenin's own playbook uh, when a majority, almost a majority of the Bolshevik Central Committee was opposed to a revolution at that time. Uh, Lenin recalled Danton's words, and he did it. Basically, it was an audacious enterprise, which uh, could have failed, but by the time they they implemented the the plan, the Soviet state was in a the sorry the Tsarist state was um, collapsing on every level, so that even the remnants of the Tsar, the constitutional democrats just basically couldn't do anything. The, the, the army, the breakup of the Tsarist army on the battlefields of the First World War was uh, a decisive event, and Bolshevik agitators on the front made sure that their words were heard. And, I mean, uh, the Lenin's ability to coin slogans which reflected the needs of a very broad layer of the masses, uh, of which the most classic was, what are the demands of the Bolsheviks? Land, bread, peace. Yes. I big land reform, food for everyone, and an end to the war. Right. So ending the war was a very popular demand, uh, which completely freaked out the Entente powers, but it was very popular in, in Russia and elsewhere. Lenin's decision to end, unilaterally end, Russian in participation in the First World War. Right. So, of course, I mean, counterfactual arguments, which are often used, is that... 
people ask, sometimes I've been asked this at meetings, had there been no First World War, would there have been a Russian Revolution? And to which the answer is, not in that form and not in that shape. But possibly 25 years later or 20 years later in a very different way. We don't know. We can all, we can only speculate. But from the point of view of the European rulers who waged that war in a struggle to amass more and more loot and property abroad in colonies, um, they paid the price for it, actually. We only have a few minutes left. I want you know this book is so good. It's called the dilemmas of Lenin. Well, I'm really pleased you like it, Randy. Yeah, uh, I, I I want people to get I, I just a couple of uh, anecdotes in here. The uh, first of all, you, Bertrand Russell uh, met with Lenin when he was in exile in London and had nothing but great things to say about him, saying he wasn't he was not an egomaniac. He wasn't doing this for self praise. He was just moving straight ahead, and he had a job to do. And without him there would not have been a revolution. I mean, you make that case quite clear in this book. Yeah. Well, I do say that, and it's an awkward argument because the discussion of the role of individuals in history has long been a contentious issue in discourse on the left. But I think there's sometimes one can say, I mean, you know, one can say that there would have been a French Revolution regardless of anything else. There would have been an English Revolution had Cromwell decided to leave the country and settle down in New England in the United States, which he was, by the way, seriously considering doing because of the political situation in Britain. They were very depressed, and lots of politicos were fleeing to settle in in, in New England. Uh, there still would have been a revolution. Uh, I think in the case of the, so, uh, of, of the Russian Revolution, uh, you would have had a February Revolution, possibly, uh, but even that was difficult without the First World War. Um, but without Lenin, even with the First World War, there would not have been a socialist revolution. I, I, of that, I'm convinced. Well, I, what I've read, I agree with you, and I certainly, you make a very strong case here. Just one other meeting uh, between uh, Kropotkin, when he was like 75 years old, and Lenin, I think in 1922, they had a very good discussion. Can you re- recap that discussion between the two and how well, it came apart? Lenin was, you know, Lenin had a soft spot for the anarchists. His uh, and and he never he never actually he didn't agree with anarchism, but he was not in favor of prosecutions. And so when Kropotkin left his exile in London and moved back to Russia after the October Revolution, um, the, the government provided the state provided him with a, an apartment and other financial help. And then a meeting was set up between Kropotkin and Lenin. And many things were discussed. And Lenin said to him, uh, Kropotkin complained about the encroaching bureaucracy. And Lenin said, as you know, this is an old problem in this country, but we would be very happy 
if you kept us informed of any display of bureaucracy and bureaucratic insolence, just let me know. Um, and then Lenin came to the point, which was the point of the meeting, which was Kropotkin's history of the Russian Revolution. That had influenced a whole, not just one, but three or four generations. And Lenin, it was out of print. And Lenin said, we need your permission to put your book back into print. And uh, Kropotkin said, yes, but you know what our views on the state are. It can't be printed by the state publishing house. To which Lenin smiled and uh, replied, no, 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 we will make sure it's published by a co-op, a cooperative publishing house. But do we have your agreement? And old Kropotkin said, in that case, you can publish it. <laughs> That's a great story to end with. Um, the name of the book, once again, is The Dilemmas of Lenin. And in the very beginning, uh, first half of this uh, interview with Tariq Ali. Uh, it's uh, in defense of Assange, and it is available at Orbooks, orbooks.com, uh, and it's it's a terrific book, and it's educational, and people should get it out there because more people need to know about the real situation that Julian Assange has undergone over the last uh, t- decade, and of course, this book on Lenin. Dilemmas of Lenin, Verso Books. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I had like, I have like so many pages. And you know, it's been a delight this week. I saw videos, I read articles by you, and uh, it's it's been a great week of prepping for this. But you know, I'm leaving nine pages of notes on the floor because we don't have enough time. And uh, once again, thank you very much, Tariq. Um, we're going to play um, something from the gadfly here. And uh, so stay on the line for one minute so I can say goodbye. And we'll play this for you. This is by uh, Shostakovich as well. Okay, uh, that was uh, Tariq Ali, and that was uh, Shostakovich, and uh, that's been a long show. I don't know if we're cutting it into two or what. I don't know. Uh, this is Randy Credico. You've been listening to Assange's Countdown to Freedom, live on the fly with uh, Covert Action Magazine, covertactionmagazine.com, and uh, at, uh, Assange's Countdown to Freedom.com. Uh, support this show. We plan to do this uh, until uh, everything is resolved, we will continue. I want to thank my good friend, uh, uh, Anonymous Scandinavia, my good friends there for making these videos or turning the videos into uh, soundtracks. Uh, they have been, and, and all of the promotion that they've done. 
for this uh, program over the years. Thank you. Uh, thank you, folks at Anomaly Scandinavia. I want to thank Frank, the engineer, uh, who did uh, another brilliant job today. Uh, and who else do I have? NYCpodcasting.com. I want to thank Margaret Ratner Kunzler. Uh, for uh, giving me this book to read and to help me get Tariq Ali. Tariq was great. I want to thank Alicia Castro and uh, Marty Stoller. Uh, We'll be back next week, uh, folks, and uh, I think we'll go out with some music about Russia here. You'll never guess. Here we go.